Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. So uh, we took a break. Yes, to do research and get ready for the season. And then this happened. Time magazine unearthing a photo of Justin Trudeau dressed as Aladdin in brown face. Another image of Trudeau wearing what appears to be blackface. Justin Trudeau apologized again today for his past behavior, but was this enough for Canadians? Okay, so I have to be honest. When that happened, I fully expected all the other party leaders, with the exception of Jagmeet Singh, to also apologize for doing blackface. Right. You feel like everyone in the country and beyond <laughs> is doing blackface. and I. But I can promise you I have not. No, I believe you. I, no, no, no. I don't think everyone is doing it. But a lot of people have been doing it for years and years. I mean... You know, blackface is still going on strong in television, film, even some of the GIFs you might be using. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to try and figure out what blackface is, how it came to Canada, and why in the world people are still doing it and thinking it's okay. And warning, this episode will contain some strong language. Okay, although I feel like we can't really answer why people are still doing it. Like, we can't answer that question. It's like, why are there still teams called the Redskins right. and the Eskimos? And why is Johnny Depp still doing ads <laughs> with uh, with uh, indigenous people as a backdrop for a cologne called Sauvage? I'm yeah. assuming that's how you say that. I, yeah. Sauvage. Sauvage. Anyway, it's... Yeah, it's racist. Yeah, no, no, no. it's true. Uh, but I think we'll be able to see how the past and the beginnings of blackface in Canada have really informed the present and hopefully shed some light as to why someone like uh, Justin Trudeau, who, you know, is not that old, he's 48, he's not 102, could be doing blackface like on the regular. And this is someone who has always placed Canada's diversity as a racially tolerant place. Uh, you know, it's one of the fundamental values. Mm -hmm. So he has done blackface mm -hmm. and brownface. Mm -hmm. Not just once. No. Not twice. Not twice. At least three times that we know of. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That he can remember. But yeah, so much blackface, way too much blackface. So for this, I interviewed Dr. Cheryl Thompson. She's an author and assistant professor at Ryerson University in the School of Creative Industries. She's been studying blackface and minstrelsy in Canada for several years. I wanted her to explain to me just how blackface came to be a thing. And she told me that it originated in the United States in the mid-1800s. Specifically, they say the first blackface character was in 1832. And it's sort of coming at a time where in the U.S. history, there's a tension between the North and the South, and you have a migration of African Americans into the North. Blackface started as a part of minstrel shows. So these shows were usually theatrical comedies or, you know, variety shows with singing and dancing that would see white performers in blackface. The performers used burnt cork to darken their skin. They would exaggerate their lips by using white or red paint and would wear black wigs and gloves to cover their hands. 
by putting on this blackface costume, they would then portray caricatures of African-Americans. Now, the really interesting thing is that minstrel shows originated out of the northern free states. So these are places in the U.S. that didn't have slavery and therefore had a smaller population of African-Americans living in them. That's interesting. You think that it would have come from the south, like from the Mm. southern part of the states where black populations were larger and uh, slavery was more of a a common occurrence. Yeah, more of a thing. That's what I thought too. But these minstrel shows had a particular goal. So it's a northern American creation that is essentially trying to reproduce the south for popular entertainment. The original minstrel show is really about the relations of slavery. So you have caricatures of black men and women in the north and then caricatures of black men and women in the south. And at that time, it's really used to soothe what is essentially class racial tensions because you have these these people suddenly in the midst of the white working class essentially in the northeast of America. At the root of blackface at that time, as especially as you get into the 1850s, now you're heading toward the Civil War. Right. And you're heading toward real tension. So it becomes a tool to kind of reinforce um, the place of black Americans in America. So she explains two things that I think are essential in learning why blackface and minstrelsy existed. It was about subjugation or controlling the lives and social standing of African-Americans. And most of its creators and audience had never met a black person. Yeah. That's right. Cheryl told me that the creator of Blackface was a white guy by the name of Thomas Daddy Rice, who mimicked an elderly black man. And so Daddy Rice supposedly sort of ventured down south, kind of, and saw an old man dancing what he coined Jim Crow. So then he danced Jim Crow for the first time in 1831-1832. That is also the name that was then used for segregation, right, Right. by the 1896. So they took the same term that came from The Minstrel Show. And I think what most people don't understand about The Minstrel Show is that that is the first truly American form of popular culture. Right. Everything goes back to that. Jazz, the white appropriation of jazz, I should Mm -hmm. say, film, television, radio, theater, American theater. It all starts – Right, that that vaudeville. Yes, vaudeville. vaudeville. Because everything before then was imported from Europe. So what she's saying is that most of the theater and entertainment consumed by white people in the U.S. was from Europe. Yeah. And when minstrel shows and blackface was created, it was the beginning of popular entertainment in America. That's right. I'm kind of shocked by that. Right? Yeah. The minstrel show is truly the only – the first thing in the 19th century that America creates because it's telling this weird like warped story of its history to people in a geographic location who don't know anything about it, right? right? Because at that time, we're talking about pre-railroad because before people could move around, you really didn't know what What was going on. on. You were really ignorant. So then this show would tell you – (laughs) the stories of the South, and you took them to be true. So I was so fascinated by this idea that blackface and minstrelsy originated in northern states. So I was really curious then at how it came to Canada. Yeah, were American performers coming to Canada at this time? Like, how did it make its way up here? Well, it came like everything else did in the mid to late 1800s, the railroad. This is a time of migration and settlements on indigenous lands and also of enslaved black people in the U.S. coming to Canada through the Underground Railroad. Right. So all of a sudden, 
a white ruling culture is looking at these new black arrivals with curiosity and suspicion and fear. Most white Canadians had very little to no contact with the black people who were coming here. So when the minstrel performers would come via railway, white Canadians would attend the shows in droves. The true way to learn about another culture is to meet them, not go to a minstrel show. But that is at the center of all cultural appropriation, ignorance. Yeah, it's true. But it's, you know, it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea of blackface being cultural appropriation because the portrayals of black life that it it reflects, it's just not rooted in any reality. It's completely made up. Right. And so what is the caricature that blackface represents? Like what kind of quote unquote black person is it supposed to portray? Yeah. So blackface comes down to several stock characters that you can still see depicted in film today. When minstrelsy started, the audience had a variety of ignorant assumptions to choose from. The first character is Jim Crow. Well, let's see now. Mm. I'll pay you all your work. No, ma'am. I gotta have some money. So Jim Crow is located in the South. Right. He's lazy. He's on the plantation. Loves watermelon. Mm -hmm. Loves to be in a group of people. Just, just frolicking. Now, all I want you to do is meet me at the zoo in the morning at nine o'clock. Yeah, with the rest of the monkeys. With the rest of the mm -hmm. right has kind of has no purpose in life other than fun mm -hmm. and mischief. The next is Zip Coon. Oh, Zip Coon, he's a learned scholar. Oh, Zip Coon, he's a learned scholar. Oh, Zip Coon, he's a learned scholar. Sings possum of the gum tree, Cooney and the house. This character is different from the southern Jim Crow because he's from the north. This is the very well-dressed, well-spoken, but at the same time kind of a joke to the dominant culture because they're trying to be something that they're not. Mm, so, they're trying to fit in. Yes, they're okay. speaking really well. They're dressing really flashy. It's like almost like who do they think they are? Right. So they're kind of a funny character for that reason. Zip Coon is a supposed comic character because, you know, he puts on airs. He's trying to have a higher station in life. So the derogatory term Coon comes from this character. Oh, Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I didn't know any of these really, not in this sort of in-depth way. The only character I think I sort of knew about was Mammy. Mammy, Mammy, I'd walk a million miles for one of your smiles on my Mammy. So the depiction of like the overweight, mm -hmm. kind of unattractive black woman as caretaker for white women and children. And she's always smiling. She's always, always smiling. Pleasant. But at the same time, asexual, has no family of her own, only there to serve and please, right? There's also the Piccaninny, who is a child. Piccaninny can be male or female, but it's a stereotype of black children as basically in neglect, um, disheveled, lack of parenting, somehow older than their stated age. Every time I think of this stereotype, I always think about how Trayvon Martin was framed, that he wasn't a 17-year-old. He was a man, mm -hmm. right? And so these things are in our culture and they've never gone away. Okay, so what exactly is Cheryl saying here? What she's saying is Trayvon Martin's murder, he was a very young 
boy who was killed he was perceived as being like a a man you know like a robber coming in the night you know that perception that black children are older than they are that happens in canada all the time as well because they are really denied an innocence like in 2016 in ontario two peel police officers were called to a school to discipline a six-year-old black girl and they ended up handcuffing her hands and her feet And very similarly, how indigenous children are treated as well. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, there was the Bank of Montreal that recently came under fire for having called the police on a 12-year-old girl and her grandfather who were trying to open a bank account. But they put her in handcuffs because they thought she was committing bank fraud. And I mean, honestly, if she's she's that old and she's committing bank fraud, then... I mean, she's maybe a genius. Well, then, then maybe, yeah. I mean, and maybe she needs to go into accelerated program. But that's not what was happening. No, they were actually you know, just I, opening you know, a bank I'm account. Like, I, I think I was 11 when I got my first bank account. Yeah. Do you know what my password was? No. One, two, three, four. I'm like, okay. <laughs> is it still that? Because you've really screwed yeah. yourself right now. You just said that on Cross Canada. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these instances happen all the time, all the right? Time. Uh, there's the case of the 11-year-old African-Canadian boy, Emil Somerville, who in 2019, just last year, was kicked out of an Edmonton Catholic school because he wore a do-rag. Mm-hmm. And he wore it to school and people just assumed he was in a gang. Right. Yeah. But a do-rag is a headscarf that is worn to protect hair or a hairstyle. Yeah, it's a practical piece of clothing. Piece of clothing. It's a a headscarf, you know. And so the stereotyping of, you know, the black child in minstrel shows can't be ignored because it solidified a lot of these misconceptions. Other characters like the Jezebel or Wench, you know, that holds strong too. This character would be a light-skinned or mixed African-American woman who was over-sexualized and seen as an object of lust. The buck, who was a hyper-sexualized and large African-American man who directed his dangerous desires towards white women. Um, And then there was also, lastly, Uncle Tom, who was very docile and compliant. You know, Cheryl told me these archetypes became really well-known. I mean, you could think of this being like the major entertainment of the time. There was no TV. There was no film. There was no radio. It was this. And everybody was consuming it. So that's why these stock caricatures, they're just so ingrained. And do you think these characters, you know, still exist? Very much so. First of all, if you've ever seen Uncle Ben's rice or Aunt Jemima's syrup in the grocery, there is Mammy and Uncle Tom looking right at you. Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. What's your happy thought for today? Well, Mr. Lyon, folks says you can't buy happiness, but you can earn it. Yes, Aunt Jemima, and I guess we all want to be happy. Quaker Oats started the brand in 1893 and was inspired by a song called Old Aunt Jemima that had been written for minstrel shows with the character of Aunt Jemima usually being played by a man in drag. When Quakers started the brand, they hired Nancy Green, a black woman who had formerly been enslaved in the southern U.S. to play the mammy character and be the face of the product, Aunt Jemima's Pancake Mix. She and eventually other actresses would visit the Toronto exhibition each year to sell pancakes, a tradition that only ended in the mid-1960s. 
Many have written that it was Nancy Green who created the pancake recipe for Quaker, and in 2014, Nancy Green's heirs filed a lawsuit for $2 billion, claiming that she was the creator of the mix and wanted compensation for the use of her image. The suit was dismissed, and even though Quaker has updated the image of Aunt Jemima, they got rid of her headscarf, that it is still Nancy Green's face on the box and syrup bottle you can buy in stores today. And Jemima pancakes without her syrup is like the spring without the fall. There's only one thing worse in this universe. That's no Aunt Jemima's at all. Aunt Jemima's without Aunt Jemima syrup? That's ridiculous. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. Okay, so I think I understand now. Blackface, the practice of white performers painting their skin formed out of minstrel shows, which came out of a North American tradition and was used to both caricature and oppress black people, all while romanticizing slavery. That's right. Okay. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay. And also, Aunt Jemima syrup is ruined, uh, but that's fine because it's not real syrup anyway. No, it's trash syrup. It's I know. No can you good. imagine if we just let that syrup thing slide? All of Canada would be right No, in. people would, we be would be enraged. Yeah. No, yeah. it's terrible syrup, and yeah. we all know this. Yes. I have so many feelings. Okay. So what happened once these minstrel shows with blackface performers came to Canada? Well, Cheryl, explain that. Black Canadians and African Americans who lived here started protesting the shows right away. Here's Cheryl again. Yeah, because there's even a historical record right in Toronto in the 1840s that they were petitioning to stop the appearance of what was then minstrel characters in traveling circuses. So that's why the circus is actually also intertwined with the minstrel show. Because before there was like a full-fledged minstrel show with like various um, plots and characters Mm -hmm. and all that, there was just a minstrel character that would tour with the circus. And often that character was Jim Crow. Right. So the circus would come to town and then there would be like a Jim Crow character that would just like come out and appear, right? And so that's how Canadians are first introduced to the minstrel show. But by the time you get into the 50s, the 1850s, I mean, I mean, everybody's – it's it's no different. It's – you would see the same shows coming here. It, it almost compared to today. Mm-hmm. It's like something's on Broadway, then it's off Broadway mm-hmm. and, and it, it tours. tours. It tours. Same yeah. idea in the 1850s onward. So as much as the tradition started in the U.S., it really became ingrained in Canadian culture. And how so? Can you give me an example? Well, or? okay. So you might not know this one, but one could argue that we wouldn't have a national anthem if it wasn't for blackface. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun fact. I'm intrigued. Okay. So once there was a musician by the name of Calixa Lavallee. He was born in Quebec in the 1840s. And if you remember, Cheryl said that it was around then when minstrel shows and blackface became popular in Canada. Okay. For white people in the 1840s, blackface was like the reality TV of the time. <laughs> yeah. It was the equivalent of The Bachelor, which is really only for white people anyway, because there's there's never been a black bachelor. 
There's been one black bachelorette, and the black person never gets a rose. Anyway, I'm going yeah, off I'm, on a tangent here, I, but you know, <laughs> that's a whole yeah. other. That is going to be a whole. I think that's tied up in this, though. I think we'll do a crash course in the bachelor, on the, bachelor the politics of the politics of the how how the bachelor plays out of <laughs> in Canadian, Canadian history. Yeah. yeah. So back to Calixa Lavallee and blackface. So. He had already decided that at the age of 12, he was not feeling that he could make it as a musician. And like so many artists, past and present, left for the U.S. Yeah, I think when I was 12, I realized I wasn't going to be a figure skater. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a hard age. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he was really young, though, and he decided to become a minstrel. He joined an American group called the New Orleans Minstrels, who traveled across the U.S., He started out playing the piano and cornet and then eventually graduated to performing in blackface and writing songs for the shows. So are you saying the guy who composed the music for O Canada Mm -hmm. learned how to write songs (laughs) because of minstrel shows? Depressingly, yes. yes. Okay. He learned how to write a catchy tune. And I'm assuming all of the songs he wrote for minstrel shows went something like, oh, minstrel shows. (laughs) I'm not standing, by the way. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. I'm just joking. He actually didn't write the lyrics, just the tune. But he really embraced this minstrel show gig. For a while, he went only by Calixa to sound Cajun. So I guess it was like, I'm Calixa. That's what I saw. I would. Calixa is kind of a It's cool, kind of a cool, cool name, name, actually. I know. I'll give him that. I hate to give him that. I know. But it was, it's a really mm-hmm. – well, I give that to his mother or father. Yes. Um, so, yeah, he, he was trying to sound more Southern or more American. But by 1873, he really just wanted to move on and be taken more seriously as a musician. So he moved back to Quebec. Okay. And so when did he write O Canada? In 1880. By that time, he had scrubbed any proof that he had been performing in minstrel shows or done blackface. Was it like not – was it even then looked at like – or was it like a lower form of humor Uh, or entertainment or something? I think it was, you know – yeah, I think it's like he wanted to write for HBO, but he had actually right. just been writing for like uh, – what's that one that you watch that's really bad? Um, like Al- Floribama Shore. Like, we are that was not the starting off the season making fun of my TV shows, Flor- my Phelan, programs. Phelan watches Floribama Shore. I watch so them that's all the and I have no shame because my brain works overtime a that's lot. Fine. And so at the end of the day, I just want to watch okay, – I feel like I've 20, hit on something. I know. <laughs> it's fine. I just watch – the entirety of the circle on Netflix. It's terrible. It's that one makes me feel it's really a bad. Ill. It's really bad. So, but that's what he was doing. He right. wanted okay. to to start looking like he was more professional and not doing this kind of really pop culture gotcha. thing. So he actually went to Paris, studied music, and when he came back, people considered him classically trained. You know, a high end musician. Of course, not realizing his actual training was just degrading black people, and that's how we got a national anthem. Um, Way to go. <laughs> okay, so this is the show we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, no. You want to know these things, but, but also, you kind of don't. I don't yeah. know. I mean, yeah. I know. I wish I, I had one of those things. like memory wipe things from Men in Black, but instead it would just leave the knowledge and erase how it makes you feel. We need to work on that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's escapable. No. I think we need to feel it. Okay. Well, here I'm we a, are. Yeah. <laughs> here we are feeling it. All right. So uh, since that technology is not available to us, mm-hmm. to men in black ourselves, mm-hmm. let's let's skip ahead because I'm curious how this how this history, you know, is informing us today. 
Yeah, so as Canada moved into the early 1900s and beyond, minstrel shows became so popular, they were being performed everywhere. And by everywhere. Oh, I mean, just not only in theaters. When I asked Cheryl about it, she told me these shows were happening at community clubs, athletic clubs. Um, high school graduation ceremonies often used mm-hmm. to end with a minstrel show. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Church groups, yeah. often the women, like singles groups at the church would have like the women's minstrel show oh, my organization. Um, so there was it was literally in the community. So you can imagine if you're a black person living in Canada in the 1930s and you know down at the local athletic club, there's a minstrel show. Down at the women's auxiliary group, there's a minstrel show. What are you going to do, right? What mm-hmm. Who are you going to go and complain mm-hmm. to about this thing? So when people note the absence of like real visible black resistance, you have mm-hmm. to think to yourself, It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Who are they going to complain to? That makes total sense. There would have been real danger for the black community to speak out against these performances. Of course, many still did, but especially for smaller communities, it would have been really dangerous. Really hard. So if you, you know, if you are five black people living in a small town in Saskatchewan, how do you protest? Yeah. People would just fear for their lives. And this is the aspect that is missing from many articles that I read when Justin Trudeau's blackface scandal came out. Yeah, I think it's been missing that this practice of blackface is violent. Because if you feel that you can wear blackness as a costume, if blackness is meaningless, it makes it harder for black people to be seen as just people. And that diminishes pain and therefore makes it easier for violent acts against black people to be legitimized. It's harmless to you, but to us, it means our lives are at risk. Yeah, you think your frosh weak fun of wearing blackface to imitate Jamaican athletes is just hilarious. But meanwhile, black students are kind of terrified of you. By the way, that actually happened in 2011 at the University of Montreal. Anthony Morgan, who was a law student at McGill, he he filmed it and he went on to file a complaint with the Quebec Human Rights Commission. Yeah, and well, Cheryl and I did talk about how many universities seem to invite and really encourage minstrel shows throughout history on their campuses and how that has now led to people still casually showing up at parties or frosh week with blackface on. Lots of universities in Canada have been called out for having students show up in blackface, and one of those universities is McGill. McGill is in Montreal. It is a public university and is pretty well regarded. And it's the oldest Anglophone university in Canada. It was formed in 1821. Yeah, and almost right away, blackface was the thing people did when they wanted to celebrate. Phelan, can you read this excerpt from the McGill student paper from 1906? Messieurs Huntley and Mackenzie will oblige with a blackface clog dancing during the love scene in the first act. Okay, very nice. I, I love know, I, I love that voice. Uh, but uh, spoiler alert, I'd be so mad if someone like you just told us what happened. I know, they spoiled it. They spoiled it. Um okay, so here's another one. Please read this one from a review of the McGill Medical Underground show. This is now almost 40 years later after the one that you just read. So this is now in 1938. The program was rounded off with entertainment provided by members of the society. The Robinson brothers, Alex and Harold played a piano duet. James Kerr gave a fine solo on the violin. 
Tom Spencer and Art Bradisher did a blackface, which brought down the house. <laughs> yeah, brought down the house. I know. Someone does a piano duet, uh-huh. a violin, and then you show up with blackface and you're the closing number. <laughs> and people love it. Like, people you don't even it. have to have talent. <laughs> well, you just have to be an asshole. But <laughs> things like this were really common. Like, we see this over and over again. By the time the 1960s rolls around, you have people like uh, Frank Mills, future pianist and composer doing radio. Charles impersonations in blackface when he was part of the science program at McGill. So it was kind of throughout yeah, time. throughout the ages. A proud part, <laughs> like, is it on their school crest? McGill, like, we did blackface once. Yeah. You know? McGill, yeah. we did blackface a lot. <laughs> uh, we're never getting invited no, to McGill to lecture. No. <laughs> Thank God I've already gone to university. Okay. All right. So from 1906 to 1960, blackface shows were accepted, I guess, and commonplace at McGill. Well, I mean, you know, honestly, I'm not just picking on McGill. It was happening everywhere in Canada, really. There were traveling minstrel shows that were going on well into the mid-1980s. At McGill and a lot of other universities, they have documents pointing to where minstrel shows were happening on campus. So why are we just focusing on McGill then? Okay, well, for starters, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for starters, it's in Quebec. If you look at the place with the most occurrences of blackface today, it's in that province. It feels like every year I hear that there's been a show where a white performer does blackface to impersonate a black celebrity. You know, there was an instance where someone did it to impersonate hockey player P.K. Subban. When it gets called out, the response is usually, well, this is a tribute. You know, this is a Mm -hmm. tribute. Yes. And a lot of the articles and stuff that I read about French Quebec will say, you know, it's an Anglo ideal to not do blackface. That's an Anglo kind of. So it's a Franco. Thing. It's a francophone thing to do blackface. Like, well, is that's that what, what I that thought. Means? But listen, that is what I thought. But Cheryl clarified the Anglo francophone divide when it came to blackface. First off, why the the case of Quebec is unique is that. The history of blackface in Quebec, I would say up until contemporary, really has been the Anglo community, specifically the Anglo-Jewish community. So it's a combination of things. You had the same touring American shows that would come to Toronto. The truth is they first left New York and went to Montreal. That was the route because Montreal's closer, right? right yeah. So it'd be like New York, Montreal, Toronto, Buffalo, and sometimes Chicago. That was kind of the circuit that they would do in the, in the legit. So these are English plays. Imagine in Montreal prior to the 1970s, who's going to these shows? It's the English community. Right. Then in the 1920s and 30s, it's the Jewish community in Montreal specifically that is maintaining a lot of the the, the blackface that is happening. Right. Because as many people know, Al Jolson was actually Jewish. <laughs> That's yeah. not his real name. Wait, stop. Okay. For people who don't know, Al Jolson was a performer and comedian who was super famous in the 20s and 30s. I didn't know he was Jewish. That's mm-hmm. that, that is news to me. So he was also the star of the first uh, film, like the first talking film, The Jazz Singer, and was known as the world's greatest entertainer and the 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 best title he has of all, <laughs> and like the king of blackface. <laughs> so he did a lot of blackface. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Cheryl explained that. He and many other Jewish Americans did blackface really regularly. It was very popular. And it was almost, you know, as a way to assimilate into American culture and to anglicize themselves. And so this was happening all over Montreal at this time. 
And I think this is so interesting how these things, these deeply problematic and racist things become part of Canadian traditions and then they become normalized and just the fabric of our country. So we have both English and French people in Canada loving blackface for a while there. But then obviously something has changed because even though blackface is still happening, most of English Canada is not going to performances that have blackface in it. But in Quebec, they still are. I mean, some of Quebec, yeah. And well, as Cheryl explained to me, the 60s basically happened. That's the divide. Civil rights in the U.S. took hold with leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. leading the fight for equality and justice for African Americans. English Canada, including the English in Quebec, were watching this. But white Francophones in Quebec, they saw it differently. At that same time, there's like a silence in Francophone Quebec. Mm-hmm. Partly the reason for that is by the 1960s, a lot of Francophone Quebecers are actually feeling as if they are the African-Americans of Canada. So they oh, are being yes. oppressed, right, by right. the English Canada. This French-Canadian perception that they too were as marginalized as black people in Canada or African-Americans – this is illustrated by journalist Pierre Valuet's book, which translates to White of America. The book makes the comparison that historical treatment of French Canadians and black people were the same. Valuet saw French Canadians as an exploited and oppressed people. Some even used the term colonized. As in the French in Canada have been colonized by the English. Mm, Welcome to the club, my friend. Mm, yeah, well, you know, I can't really blame them. I, too, look on black Canadians and French Canadians as the same. We both have protected languages and share a long list of prime ministers who've ruled the country and, you know, been in power. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait, no. 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 Okay. And – the language thing I find mm-hmm. really interesting because this idea of, you know, of French-Canadian sovereignty in the country is, you know, it, it just feels like it really – it feels like when we talk about language and, and um, official languages, mm-hmm. it feels like when we talk about official languages, the indigenous piece of the pie is left out of that, that formula, that puzzle. Absolutely. I when know. is that happening? I don't know. Because then it's like, well, whose is it? Right, right? exactly. There's so, there's so many, many languages. There's so many. There's so but, many. But then that, I mean, it's a bigger conversation, but absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know how, you know, you can make the case um, when you have an official language in Canada where your language is taught across Canada um, and really valued that you are colonized. Yeah. I mean – Sure. I mean, it's it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that sentiment was going on in the 60s. But what about in the 80s when multiculturalism started being a thing? What Mm -hmm. was, you know, how was Quebec handling that? Well, I mean, so there were two uh, different camps, I guess. English Canada says... We embrace diversity. We want to be an inclusive state. That same time, Quebec is saying this is an assault on who we are as a people and we don't feel that we need to do this. So there's always a pushback to multiculturalism. Then as you get into the 90s and then into the 2000s and into today, the reason I believe that French Quebecers cling to blackface is because they have yet to accept black Canadians into their state. Right. So there is a denial of blackness in Canada as being Quebec. 
Instead, it's still seen as this outer thing that isn't really part of Quebec. So, of course, they can do it because these people aren't really part of us anyway. And this is really making me think about Bill 21, the bill in Quebec that is a ban on religious symbolism in the public sector and further marginalizes minority groups. Again, Bill 21 is actually targeting some people who have born and raised in that place. French is their first language. Right. It doesn't matter. So when you hear the discussion about language, it's actually quite strange because everyone you're targeting is French speaking for the most part. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So if it would be about language, you would think that that would check the box, but it doesn't because even though they don't want to have the discussion, language is actually about race. Mm-hmm. But in the French um, state, it's very hard to talk about race. It's like they don't want to talk about race. They say it's language. Mm-hmm. So you can never really get to the root of it. But that's the reason I believe that 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 blackface has returned because it really is a way to ensure that black Quebecers don't fully assimilate into the dominant mm-hmm. culture. Okay. So that to me explained a bit about why we still see blackface in Quebec And we are looking at Quebec because McGill University is located in Montreal. Right. Okay. And why did you want to just focus on McGill again? I just, you know, I'm preparing for the letters. (laughs) Well, here's why. McGill is known for producing a pretty flashy group of alumni. It is known to some as Canada's Harvard. It's, you know, really an Ivy League, very good school. And it has graduates including famous actors, writers, some Pulitzer Prize winners, and three prime ministers, including Justin Trudeau. Ah, I see. Okay. Okay. See what I did there? But, you know, I think Justin Trudeau might be the typical type of person who does blackface. The more (laughs) I talk – seriously. It's true. Okay. Okay. I'm going to make a case here. Make the case. So the more I talked to Cheryl, I started to think that blackface might be about class more than anything. Is that why we're seeing it at universities more than anywhere else nowadays? You know, it used to be Mm. everywhere. Now it's just universities. It's kind of – you know, behind mm-hmm. closed doors, in private, in more what you could describe as elite or rich circles. It is very rare, if at all, that you will ever see a working class white person put on blackface. Yeah. <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. You will almost always see a middle to upper class white person doing it and defending it. And I think often it's in those spaces because they don't expect us to be in those spaces. And historically, we've never been in those spaces. So they're looking at it like, well, my dad did this in 1983. In 1983, yeah, you know what? There probably wasn't a black person at McGill in the program that you're in. Right. The fact that it's happening is not what's changed. Uh It's the fact that now we're in those spaces to to say something about it that I think it seems like this thing is like suddenly, Mm -hmm. but it isn't suddenly. Mm -hmm. What's sudden is that – and that's why for me it's kind of in a weird way a good thing. Mm -hmm. It says to me that we're entering echelons that we have never been in before. It doesn't matter – that he was well-educated, that his father was the prime minister that re- who really ushered in a wave of immigration that opened the door for brown and black people all over the world to come to Canada, including my parents. Um, you know, what matters most is that he grew up without knowing people who didn't look like him. Right. Clearly. And, yes. Clearly he did. Yes. I mean, think about like, you know, when he and his family took that trip to India, right? And he was really called <laughs> yes. out for 
going overboard. Well, I think the whole world looked at him like I, I remember that as being like one of the first times he was really made fun of by an international audience. Yeah. And it was I think those things are connected. Right. Because for for a lot of people looking at how they dressed on that trip, it was like performative. Oh, it God, was almost yeah. like they felt I thought looking at it like they thought they were putting on a quote unquote costume. When it seemed like they they Which were putting on not, a costume, they were, yeah. yeah, they were put looked at it like putting on a costume, and they also you could tell they they felt good about it. Like oh, they yeah. just emanated this like sense of like look at me and the <laughs> praying in every you know photo. So I you know there are lots of articles online from uh, about this. I found one from Outlook India, and it the headline is Trudeau's family's attire too flashy even for an Indian, and they talk about like. Look, a lot of this this dress that they wore, um, you know, everyday people in India are not wearing this. Not even in Bollywood, it says. Like, right. it's just – so, yeah, to me, those things are connected. I And I see that, you know, I think we we see that connection so clearly now. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's fine to wear a costume and mm-hmm. paint your skin because – because these people aren't real to him. That's right. Or real to people who do this kind of behavior. Yeah, black and brown people are not real. They exist only in my imagination as a caricature. And it's not that bad. It's just a bit of fun, you know? Right, until someone takes a picture or videotapes it. Well, and that's been the real turning point, I think, social media. I mean, that is what I think has actually changed this conversation. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Blackface has existed for this long. People have been doing it for this long. But before, you know, if you were in a small black community or brown community, you would have to protest it. You would maybe write a letter to the editor. You know, how do you let it be known that you're protesting this as a black person in 1840, in 1930, in 1960 even? But now you can videotape it. You mm-hmm. can take pictures. You can go to Twitter, you know, Snapchat, wherever, and call it out. And I think that is actually – social media is terrible <laughs> generally, mm-hmm. but the beauty – the woman <laughs> who just watched The Circle. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> it is a great, terrible show. Um, but I, I think the beauty in it is that a lot of marginalized communities can now easily call this stuff out and are – feel that there's a community there like we can see each other on social media so it's a good thing in a way right and we see it more because Mm -hmm. black people and others who think it's wrong have the power to post Mm -hmm. and social media you know has also been accused of perpetuating blackface digital blackface is a thing oh it's very much a thing Digital blackface is where white and non-black people claim a black identity on social media. You know, the most popular gifts are actually black women reacting to things. And these are most often used by non-black people. There have also been many instances of non-black people on social media taking on black avatars or what they think is blackness to gain followers. There's even a term for it. Instead of catfishing, it's blackfishing. And those celebrities, you know, like uh, like Aquafina, mm-hmm. Lily Singh, uh, Ariana Grande, and oh, of course, Kim Kardashian, oh, yeah, with her cornrows, oh my god, which she calls Bo Derek braids. 
her spray tan, mm-hmm. her surgeries, they have all been accused of blackface and commodifying black culture. Yeah. The Kardashians are really the worst right now that I can point to. But, you know, there are there have been celebrities like we've pointed out throughout history. Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. you know, did an entire blackface character as an album. She played a jazz, yeah, jazz singer. Yeah. And the, the cover of the album. Oh. Is her in black and her in blackface? It's bad, people. It you gotta Google bad. it and be shocked. Mm-hmm. And anyway. that wasn't that long ago. That was like the seventies. Yeah, but you know, now knowing this history, I yeah. feel like well, it's it's kind of you know. And the thing is, it's always kind of been there. Oh, it's always been there. Like, exactly. It's it's just taken on different. A different form. That's like, right. It, it's it's morphing now. Yeah. And what hasn't changed is many people like these celebrities profit off of what is considered to be blackness without any of the risk and day-to-day racism of actually being black. It's also the norm for people to use a quote-unquote black scent on social media. So this is all the y'alls and hootis and girl please or, you know, using uh, terms that come out of black and Latinx drag traditions like shade, tea, yes, you know, all of these reactions that are coming out of people who don't use that kind of language in their everyday lives, but they feel comfortable using black imagery, memes, and language as a way to communicate. You know, this is not by accident. It is rooted in one of the oldest forms of entertainment in North America, blackface. And like the saying goes, Everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan, research assistance by Andrea Eidinger, and CBC Archives. The digital producer of CBC Podcasts is Fabiola Carletti. Senior producer is Tanya Springer. And executive producer is Arif Narani. We are on Twitter at Secret Life of CAD and Facebook, Instagram at The Secret Life of Canada. If there's a story or piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. It does. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.